Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. Alrighty, this week we are diving back into the world of value-based care, of discussing value, assessing value, and specifically assessing and communicating that value. So we have on the show a former guest, Craig Solid. He was on oh, back in the early days, and we talked specifically about return on investment, which is a type of value assessment in healthcare. And we talked a little bit on the periphery about the, the four stakeholders in healthcare and how healthcare is subjective. Well, after his last book was released, which was on uh, return on investment for healthcare quality improvement, Craig became really interested in the idea of discussing value as a whole, taking kind of like a 30,000 foot approach, understanding ec- the economic um, implications of like, how do we define value in economics or how has it historically been defined? How does that translate to healthcare? And then how does that influence healthcare policy, decision-making? So he wrote a book, this, this new book is called Practical Strategies to Assess Value in Healthcare. And we'll link to all of this in the show notes. But uh, we have a discussion particularly around kind of this high-level view of what do we mean by value when we say value-based care or value in healthcare? How does that value change or what, how might it differ from uh, perspective to perspective? Because again, the, the patient, the policymaker, the payer, and the provider all have different incentives and varying objectives. So what is valuable, say, to a payer may actually end up being a cost to a provider. For example, if a, a, a patient gets better in four visits instead of eight visits and that payer patient or that payer uh, provider relationship is a fee-for-service model, well, that means that's less visits that that provider is able to bill for. So that's a cost to the, to the provider, but it's a, a major value for the, the payer who's now able to go spend that on another uh, patient. They're able to get more healthcare services for their dollars, right? So we discuss that a bit. We talk a little bit about kind of how the the conversation around value in healthcare has really been driven for the most part by only two of the stakeholders, which would be the policymakers and the payers. It seems that you know CMS and other regulatory bodies are setting standards for the way care is delivered, the way it's paid for, the way it's assessed and, and valued essentially, and then private third-party payers are doing the same thing. They're setting their payment models and reimbursement models, and it's leaving the the other two stakeholders in the healthcare equation kind of out in the dark, right? Patients don't have very much, if any, influence over the discussion about what is valuable in healthcare, and providers seem to be 
in the same boat. And we can advocate to policymakers, and we do sometimes, or or payers. Um, but the the majority of the drive behind that discussion comes from the regulators, uh, the policymakers, and the payers. So we talked a little bit about that, how that is influencing some of the the current models of these new va- value-based payment schemes or reimbursement schemes that are coming out onto the forefront and kind of ha- how we should think about them, how we should think about assessing the value of the services or even an initiative being considered at a healthcare organization or facility. So hopefully um, this ends up being a very interesting discussion to listen to. Again, I think when it comes to, you know, most of the most of the people listening to this podcast are not administrators or, or policymakers. Most of them are either clinicians or clinicians turned manager or, or uh, executive, right? We're we're not dealing a lot on this show with uh, setting regulatory policy or reimbursement models. A lot of it is how do we translate some of this stuff into the real boots on the ground clinical services being provided daily in our facilities. And I think it's a very underrepresented <laughs> um, topic that needs to be discussed more both at the provider and patient level, and then also kind of moving that up the chain into advocacy when it comes to developing these new or or accepting these new payment models. So without further ado, here's Craig Solid talking about assessing value and then communicating value in healthcare. Well, hey, Craig, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to have a return guest here. You've got a new book. So um, why don't you give us just a little bit of kind of an update about you, your work, and uh, what led to this new book, which is all about assessing value in healthcare, right? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm an independent consultant, and I work with healthcare organizations to help them quantify, demonstrate, and communicate the value of their product, service, you know, what, whatever it might be. Um, a couple of years ago, I published uh, a book called Return on Investment for Healthcare Quality Improvement. And that was, you know, very focused uh, on one particular type of value assessment. And in the conversations I had with firms and organizations and people afterwards was that there was uh, sort of an appetite for a larger conversation around value more generally. Um, and just Uh, The notion that we talk about value a lot in this business, but we don't always mean the same thing and we're not very specific about what we mean and, um, you know, value-based payments and things like that. So um, this, I, I wrote, I wrote this one as sort of a broader exploration into first, what is value and, and what do we mean by that? And historically, what have we meant? And then two, what can we do moving forward to get, to try and get a little bit more consistent about what we mean by value and, and potentially how can we make reasonable comparisons and actually assess uh, whether programs are good or bad or decisions are good or bad based on, on uh, how we do that. Yeah. 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 I remember last time you came and talked, we, it was a very focused conversation on that whole ROI piece. And even then we kind of touched on it like, well, value is subjective. It means different things to different people. Um, but yeah, it definitely bears like kind of pulling, zooming out, if you would, and kind of taking a big picture 
approach. And I, I did enjoy a couple of the pieces of your book here. You talked about the three main challenges of understanding or assessing value specifically in healthcare. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about just let's lay the groundwork for um, how have we historically discussed value or defined it and then kind of wander, meander into the, into the healthcare side of things. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, a lot of this comes out of economics in yeah. general, right? And so um, traditionally, there are economic definitions of value, which usually have to do with how much somebody is willing to pay for something or uh, how much labor and capital, uh, you know, needs to be invested to produce a widget or whatever. Um, and so we have sort of historically tried to apply some of those things to healthcare and um, with differing amounts of success. So when I, what I talk about in the book is, um, you know, healthcare in some ways is different, right? It's extremely complex. Uh, it's complex in terms of how it's set up, how, how it's paid for is complex, which has huge implications for assessing value because usually yeah. you are at least somewhat interested in who's paying for it. Um, you know, health in general is complex. The health, you know, maintaining health, the uh, uh, myriad of conditions, mind-body connection, you know, all this sort of stuff. So um, the, one of the primary um, struggles that everyone can sort of immediately see is that complexity. So historically, we've tried to apply sort of oversimplified models in some way to this extremely complex situation. And as a result, we're never really talking about the same thing or uh, the model is so sort of oversimplified that it's, that it's not really applicable to what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes into, you know, like most people are talking costs versus, you know, benefit versus all this. And you, there's just a whole lot more at play, especially, I think it is interesting, the discussion around who's paying for it and how that's, you know, pushing a lot of this, right? Like these third-party payers have much different interests than sometimes even the, the end recipient, right? Like the person that's receiving the, the services isn't necessarily the one paying for the bulk of the, of the service, right? Yeah, and, and it, that can cause confusion. So, you know, I, I say several times in the book, you can't talk about value until you answer the question, value to whom? Exactly. Um, and if you're talking about value-based care, you know, some might say, well, when these payers set this up, are they talking about value to them or value to patients or, or who's the value for? Because that has huge implications for how we assess whether or not it is actually doing what it says or is successful or what learnings we can pull from it to potentially make future ones. I mean, you know, the, the payment, I mean, you know, the, whether it's insurance and co-pays or whether you've met your deductible and, you know, negotiated um, lower prices and Medicare versus Medicaid, all this sort of stuff. So just even the same service to the same person can cost wildly different things depending on the, on the situation. So it, it really, it, we can't just talk about value as a single phenomenon that is universally applied and universally defined across all these situations. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So let's, let's talk about then these, these three main challenges. Obviously we've kind of touched on one, which is I'll just name them and then we'll kind of dive into them. So one is the complexity, two is continuity. And then three is the, the lack of consistency. So let's circle back, talk about complexity. I know you already laid out the case. It's a messy world in healthcare. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's messy in every sense of the word. Right. And so I think one of the things, I mean, even when, 
even when someone seeks out medical care, it's a complex uh, combination of people and services and timing and appointments and and um, durable medical equipment and you know even trying to figure out what's the value of a particular visit. There's so many moving parts in that, uh, whether it's a hospital or a clinic or whatever it is. It's just that combined with the complexity of paying for it and the complexity of health just makes it really difficult. And it, and it can make it difficult to sort of understand, um, you know, what are the components that we're assessing the value of? And can we split them out? And can we actually determine how much is due to the clinician and how much is due to um, the medication and how, you know, so it just makes it that much harder to attribute, you know, certain components to, uh, the value that you want to assess. Yeah. Especially because a lot, a lot of these systems, like the reimbursement structures, even the ones that are value-based, right. Are they're They are standardized by necessity because of scale, but there's a difference, right? Like a, a new graduate clinician that's just graduated a week ago versus maybe like the cardiothoracic surgeon who's been doing this for 20 years, arguably, or not even arguably, you could say, well, this guy's opinion that's been doing this for 20 years is probably worth more than this new grad, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, loop that into some kind of payment structure if you wanted to, it just, it becomes super, super complex. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, even sort of broader than that, sort of philosophically, you know, we, when we talk about health, we can talk about healthcare delivery, like the delivery of treating patients. And we can talk about population health, right? And we yes. can talk about how healthy the, you are in maintaining your health. And in some ways we think of those as different things and they are, but they're interrelated, right? And so one of the things that, and this gets into, this leaks into some of the other um, uh, of those three components, but, um, you know, population health, we think of as sort of a societal responsibility and a personal responsibility. And yet with value-based payment, a lot of times we're sort of asking clinicians and hospitals who treat at the you know care delivery point of care to think about things like, well, what's going to happen to them in 30 days? How are they going to maintain their health? How are they going to you know stay healthy and stay out of the hospital? And those really are population health questions. So we've even sort of made it even more complex through some of these um, reimbursement um, policies, like you said. Yeah. So uh, and that kind of bleeds into the, the continuity, right? Like if somebody's in the in the ER right now, it's no longer about just fixing them and sending them on their way. You know, now there's readmission standards and you know how much they use in care over the next 30 days and all that kind of stuff. So I'm assuming that's kind of what we're bleeding into, right? This continuity. How does how does a value-based reimbursement scheme, if we're going to do that, kind of count for and cover all of that, right? Yeah, I mean it, it, it poses challenges <clears throat> for assessing value as you know, as we've moved away from sort of siloed care into this, you know, idea of more holistic care. Um, connected care, uh, continuous care, you know, your primary care physician should talk to this physician and all that sort of stuff. That's great. And, and that often provides better care, but in terms of assessing value, it can make it more complicated to understand, okay, what portion of that journey is what affected whether or not say they were readmitted or had an infection or um, had a relapse or whatever it was, how do we sort of tease out where the value is and how do we determine which activities and which processes and which policies had the biggest impact on that value, uh, both in sort of like a conceptual way, but also just in terms of getting data. I mean, 
if you want to really understand and really gather information and data that will help you do this, you might need to collect it from multiple settings and multiple sources and multiple clinicians and, and over a long period of time. So just logistically, it can make, make it that much harder to sort of fully assess the value of a particular sort of um, care pathway. Yeah. And, well, and then on top of that, you've got, like you said, we're not, we know holistic care is the way to go. We know we shouldn't be siloed, but most of the time, all of the clinicians on that care team are siloed, right? It's they're different provider organizations or different provider practices, or, you know, the specialty, you know, anesthesiology, its own practice within the hospital. And then, you know, surgeries, it's, a, you know, orthopedics is its own little silo. So then there's all the, the argument too about it. Well, who gets paid? How do we code for it? How do we bill for it? And that's even when it gets even more complex, right? Because then you're getting CPT codes for asynchronous, you know, virtual care versus this, that, and the other versus a consultation. It, it just becomes a mess. Yeah. And, and we're making it, again, you know, virtual care and remote care is a good thing and provides access. Um, and yet it just complicates things too, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, it's these are challenges that we're facing and that we will face going forward. And so, um, you know, my argument is, is not that we need to make it less complex or we need to make it, you know, less, you know, less continuous. We just need to be aware of these things as we are thinking about value assessments to, to understand where are the challenges and what are we going to do and how are we going to sort of design this with these things in mind? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that kind of moves us. So as we move forward, <laughs> trying to develop not just a piecemeal system, are we talking like at the governmental level, at the payer level, like how is this all, how's this all working? Yeah. I mean, and, and that, that sort of bleeds into the continuity piece um, or I'm, the consistency piece, excuse me. And um, you know, our policy has been inconsistent, right? Yeah. We moved from fee-for-service to value-based <clears throat> and even the value-based policies change and morph and whatever. And so still in terms of assessing value, it makes it hard to make comparisons over time. It makes it hard again with attribution because maybe the introduction of some policy corresponded to the introduction of some other policy or some change in clinical guidelines, right? So there's there's not really consistency in terms of how uh, medicine is practiced sort of on a sort of detail level or how it's paid for or covered or you know even obtained. So um, that that makes it hard too. And as you say, you know really these are challenges across the board. It's not just government payers, it's it's not for profit, it's not not for profit. It's sort of everybody sort of facing these and these are sort of universal, issues. They may manifest slightly differently for these different settings or payers, but they all are facing these to, to some extent. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about like incentives and, and who's valuing what too, because, you know, when, when we do work, you know, with, with clients here at, at Rehab U and we're talking about, like, well, let's set this up for the long term. Like we're always talking about those four P's, you know, you've got the payer, the provider, the policymaker uh, and the patient, right? So, they each all have a different set of not only just incentives, but what they consider valuable, right? Yes. And, and, and that's why you can't really talk about value until you say value to, to whom, yeah. right? If you avoid a hospitalization that has value for a payer, it has value for a patient, but the way that you think about that value and would quantify that value is very different. 
right? So, uh, and well, one would patient, argue the, the, the hospital is is losing money, right? <laughs> not right. I mean, they, they are. I mean, and, you know, so that's, I mean, that's the best argument to, to, to indicate that there's not a single definition of value because benefits to some are costs to others. And you can't just talk about, oh, we're going to just increase the value for everybody. That's not always, you can't always do that. Um, and, you know, you, you, it can be hard to measure that value. And so you, you need to be specific about it. And, and some of my critiques of some of the value-based programs are not necessarily in how they're structured, but in some ways how they're communicated. You know, be clear about whose perspective you're doing this from and, and how you're defining it, because that lets us understand um, you know, oh, do they care about unintended consequences for, for patients? Well, maybe they do, but the way that they really are defining value is from a payer perspective or whatever it might be. So it's, it just, your example just sort of illustrates why you sort of have to think more critically than we historically have about these. Yeah. Well, and wouldn't there be a dearth in the, in the argument or the, the literature, if you would, about those other payers, I mean, it, or the other, the other stakeholders, because it seems like most of the, the dialogue around value-based care and value-based reimbursement is really being driven by the payers who are paying for it or like CMS, which is, I guess, technically a payer, but they, they do run policy at the same time, right? The, those two are the big dogs when it comes to deciding how it's going to get paid for and who's going to do what. And it kind of leaves the, the provider and the patient kind of like, oh, what's going on? Yeah. I mean, it, historically, this sort of comes from our um, attraction to the idea that value is just simply quality per dollar spent. And that has been a rallying cry, but, cry, but that's, a, that's a very much from a payer standpoint. And, and um, you know, patients get very different value from it. Yeah. They may save some out-of-pocket out costs, but a lot of times when we talk about value, we're talking about non-monetary value, especially in healthcare. We're talking about quality of life. Uh, we're talking about caregiver burden. We're talking about hope. We're talking about equity. We're talking about, you know, and these aren't just concepts, you know, there's published literature out there that, that, that demonstrates, you know, value and hope and value and equity and things like that. So, you know, at the same time, even when we talk about being patient focused, we rarely talk about the responsibility of a patient, you know, what are, should they be expected to do? Um, you know, where, where does the responsibility of the clinician end and the, and the responsibility of yeah. the patient begin, especially if we're, you know, touting these programs that are supposedly sort of patient first. Yeah. Well, and even on top of that too, like at, at what point does society, like the societal implications of that as well, like it's not just, not just individuals out there, doing things. We just had, um, our last episode was all in the social determinants of care. Mm -hmm. And the Josie, the, the social worker that was chatting with me about it basically said like there at some point, like zip code is more predictive of your long-term health than almost anything, anything else. else. So it is, you know, there is a, there is a level of community and societal implications to all of this as well, that, that we need to take a look at just. Right. Just, and, and, and it, influences your definition of value, yeah. right? Because if you're from a payer and, and you're saying, well, value to us is based on, you know, utilization and cost savings. Okay, fine. Be clear about that. If we really want to talk about value, at what point do we include things like societal value and even economic concepts like um, productivity and absenteeism yeah. and GDP and things like that? And uh, yeah, you know, social determinants have a huge impact. And so payers are starting to understand that 
but yet the value-based programs that we've set up are not agile enough to be able to make these adjustments as we learn more about how to do this. And, and so we just haven't thought through some of these components when we have set up these programs to, to assess and quantify value. Yeah. So then, then let's talk a little bit about how we have historically talked about value. I mean, we've kind of talked about it here, like um, this total cost, but there's there's different types of value from an economic standpoint, and then we'll kind of talk about it in the healthcare standpoint. So, you know, market, um, market value, exchange value, labor theory, total cost. So let's kind of just run through those and, and you know, then make the bridge to healthcare. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of this comes from, um, you know, imaginary factors who are making one product or thing. Yes. Whoever has had an econ 101 class remembers, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, whether it's Adam Smith or whatever, a lot of it is, um, you know, it's value is how much labor took to create it and how much capital took to create it. Um, some would say value is however, whatever you can get for it on the market. That's, that's what its value, you know, is in terms of dollars, you know, and that, that's, that works in some situations and in healthcare for certain components of it, that's fine. But, but if we're trying to instead say, what is the value of smoking cessation counseling? Well, how, you know, can we put a labor and capital quantity on that? Probably not. Can we put a market price on that? Probably not. So how are we going to assess that? What are we going to consider in, in terms of value? And, and, you know, over the years, um, people have thought about this. I mean, there's literature that goes back to the seventies and eighties, um, where people realize, you know, in healthcare, it's not infinite resources. And so at some point we do either uh, explicitly or otherwise have to put a value on a human life and have to determine how much is too much. And so a lot of policy, you know, has to sort of consider that as it goes forward. So if you think of sort of the evolution, um, some of the sort of core economic theory and, and, and concepts uh, kind of lay the groundwork, but, but actually putting them into practice has, has been problematic in, in some cases. Yeah. Well, and even just thinking about like, so obviously the market, the, all these ways of assessing value, but the, the whole role of like demand mm -hmm. supply, and then the role of pricing, right? Like historically, even I think Milton Freeman talks about the, the role of prices is to decide who gets paid in, in the marketplace for the services that are being provided. And it just becomes very convoluted when we're talking, like you said, healthcare, there's all these different factors at play. So how do, especially these value, these bundled payments or these value-based reimbursement schemes where it's kind of like a lump sum, like what is that doing to the role of prices and incentives, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and even beyond that, you know, the, the basic economic uh, assumptions are that people have full information and, and that they yes. make rational decisions. And in healthcare, more than perhaps any <clears throat> other industry, patients especially do not have full information. They don't have full information about what's the best course of treatment because they're not trained clinicians. So they have to trust their clinician. They typically don't see what prices are for them or their payer. Uh, not even in a relative sense, like does a CT scan cost more than an x-ray and how much more and how much is an extra night of in this facility versus this facility? Like there's not even any frame of, of reference. Um, and then in terms of, you know, rationality, I, I go on that a little bit too. I mean, we all bring cognitive biases to whatever yeah. we look at. And, 
you know, for example, Medicare tries to institute um, price transparency and, um, you know, five-star systems. And, and yet people are going to use the information that they have in front of them. Uh, they're going to ask friends and coworkers, oh, do you know a good you know, dermatologist or whatever. And, and, and so that's going to influence uh, their decisions more, more than, you know, this full information sort of idea. So, yeah, I mean, everything that happens in real life and in practical implica- um, implementation of these policies kind of violates one of the sort of basic economic assumptions that we use when we come up with market prices and things like that. Yeah. Well, and sometimes there's two, the, the, um, I was just thinking about this the other day. So my son fell and broke his arm and we had to go to the hospital. He had to go get surgery. Like in that moment, we're not shopping around either. You know, like even if we had all that information, there's an element of, of critical, especially in areas of like critical care and emergent care. Like you're not shopping around. (laughs) You're going to the nearest hospital so you can get stuff done. Right. And that kind of skews the decision-making as well. Cause I guess that is more valuable to the person would pay more if they, if the hospital is five minutes away versus the cheaper one being an hour away. Right. Right. Especially if their payer is going to cover it, right. Yeah. They're not going to worry what their payer is going to have to pay for. They're going to, you know, the, for them in that moment value and for your, for you in that moment value was the health and safety and best treatment for, you know, your son. So this idea that we shop around and, you know, maybe we get a second opinion, but in a lot of times, you know, in, in urgent situations, uh, we're not going to do that. And that's why some have sort of pushed back on, on, you know, the historical idea of health insurance in general, you know, not all services are the same. Preventive care is different than emergency care is different than elective major surgery. And, and to think that, you know, patients um, will overconsume those, you know, equally is just sort of ridiculous. So, you know, you're, it's not like you have a co-payment for this service, um, but for major surgery, you don't, you know, it, it depends on the situation, but, but a lot of what we sort of have used, it just doesn't make sense in the, in, in the real world. Yeah. Well, and so that, that whole idea of co-pays and co-payments and incentivizing does kind of, it, it's an interesting conversation in and of itself. I know that, um, maybe that Taylor mentions it in nudge, but like the whole idea of what insurances or the cost sharing that patients are going to have to have given a specific service will incentivize things. And that in and of itself changes the demand, which changes the everything, right? Like one little ripple in this pond has huge consequences down the line. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole theory behind cost sharing is this idea of moral hazard. So the idea that um, you are willing to consume more healthcare because you don't sort of incur the full price. Right. And that always makes economists nervous. And so they, um, you know, and they assume everybody is risk averse and that you'd rather pay for insurance than sort of run the risk of having to pay, you know, for your, for your healthcare. And so um, when the full, all policy sort of goes with that, you know, that then can drive up prices in and of itself because patients still don't see it. And so, um, you know, raising those prices aren't, it's not felt by, patient. So it's, you're right, it's complicated. And just applying a copay doesn't necessarily make sense, especially for, you know, services that no one would ever consciously intentionally over consume, like major cardiac surgery or things like that, right? You're not, you're not preventing them from inappropriately spending insurance uh, companies money for those types of things. And, 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 you know, studies have even shown that the opposite is true, that people will avoid preventive care, 
if they have to if they have to pay for it, which is the exact opposite of what we want to have happen. So from an economist standpoint, you know, there's a, there's this idea of efficiency, like what's the most efficient way to spend these dollars? And the way that we're doing it right now often ends in inefficient situations for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think in your, in your book, you mentioned that the asymmetric information leads to that kind of inefficient spend or utilization of healthcare, right? Yeah. I mean, um, again, when, when consumers don't really have full information, they have to rely on their clinician and the advice that they're given. And then they bring to it certain um, opinions about whether, for example, vaccines are safe or um, whether um, they need medication to treat a certain thing and they're going to ask for it. You know, I want antibiotics or whatever it is. So, um, you know, not having the full information about, you know, clinical information, pricing information, um, you know, future outcomes information, it's impossible to make the, the most rational uh, best choice a lot of times. And so uh, um, it, it, it causes all sorts of inefficiencies in terms of how much is consumed, how it's paid for, who pays for it, things like that. Yeah. Well, and it puts the, <clears throat> the talk about incentives and like potential fraud and stuff like that. It puts the, the clinician in a very powerful place, right? Like if we know service A is reimbursed higher than service B, the patient doesn't know anything about how service A or B is going to turn out. You know, why aren't we just going to encourage that one that pays us a little more, right? Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, and there's, there's, it adds the potential for fraud and abuse, but also for perceived yeah. fraud and abuse, right? Because it's it's not always, you know, in, intentional. Yeah. And, you know, consumers, a lot of times after they even receive their service, it's hard for them to sort of determine, did that help, right? Maybe they feel a little bit better, but is it due to that therapy or is it due to something else? How do they, how do they know? So, you know, that too in economics complicates things, you know, because if you buy a widget and it works, you know that it has the value that you paid for. In healthcare, sometimes you can get a treatment and not know how much it helped. And so it makes it harder to assess, was it worth it? Should have I done that? What, you know, what advice am I going to give to someone else? And, and so it continues to complicate this idea of when is it worth it or what is the value of a particular product or device yeah. or service? Well, and even the variability of, of just people and their reactions to those, yep. you know, the, Randomized control trials, which are, you know, the gold level for evidence are still based off like the perfect population in the perfect mm -hmm. setting with only one variable, right? <laughs> right, right. And so the other side of that is, you know, quality improvement initiatives that are put into real world situations, but then those are confounded by whatever else is going on, right? And, and, um, and changes in policy or another initiative going on or changes in staffing and, and, you know, anywhere that delivers care, hospital, clinic, you know, they have a complex sort of uh, makeup of individuals who all have their own levels of experience and all their own opinions. And so there's no two that are the same. So in terms of variability, it's through the roof. And so um, that makes it hard too to assess how do we know that the value we see here today, whether it's a clinical trial or it's an initiative, is going to translate to another setting, to another place, to another clinical uh, indication. It, it, we may not. And so we have to think about that when we're trying to assess, well, what is the value or what might the value value be? Because a lot of times too, we, we just try and come up with a single number. This is the value. When yeah. in any other area of measurement or, or, you know, probability, we have some notion of sort of 
uh, uncertainty or yeah. confidence intervals. Um, and we just seem to sort of forget that in, in the value world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, specifically like moving that into healthcare, like, so historically there, there've been a few different types of like types of assessments for, for, for value in healthcare, right? Like you mentioned earlier, I think health outcomes per dollar spent or something like that. So historically what have, what have payers and providers, all the, all the P's, what have they been using to kind of define uh, value for them? Well, the most common one is, is some form of a cost effectiveness analysis. Yeah. So basically what is a change in outcomes, however that's measured, um, per dollar spent, um, you know, and, and based on what's the difference in, in spending. So this is where we get into quality adjusted life years or qualities. And you see these things, oh, we get, it costs $50,000 per quality gained. And we have to determine, you know, from a policy standpoint, whether we're, whether that's worth it. So those are the most, those are the most common. Um, you're seeing, you know, ROI, which is the motivation of my last book being more common sort of applied to clinical situations before it was sort of stuck with the administrators and should we yeah. buy this new equipment or update our facilities, like very business, you know, typical, um, uh, applications, yeah. this but, new software is going to streamline scheduling, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But now ROI is, is start his is now firmly within, okay, we're going to implement this new care protocol. What's it going to mean in terms of the return and how do, how do we think about that? Um, you know, and then variations of that. So cost savings and, and cost benefit and, and, but it, but it, a lot of it focuses around, you know, money costs, reducing yeah. costs or increasing revenue for good reason. But at the same time, when we, when we talk about value in healthcare more generally, a lot of times, I think most people usually mean more than just money, right? They, when we talk about high value care, you're not just talking about the cheapest care. Um, you know, so I, I think there's, and there's articles and I quote one in the book that basically says there's a variety of methods used and none of them have been sufficient to sort of, uh, aid decision makers in terms of what should they do and what, what is the best course of action? Yeah. Because uh, patient driven outcomes, for example, like the patient doesn't necessarily, I mean, maybe they care a little bit about how much money they're spending in the end, but if they're in excruciating chronic pain, for example, like they just want the pain gone. <laughs> right. And, and there are situations where you can imagine where a negative, you know, monetary outcome might be totally worth it. If yeah. the non-monetary benefits that you get from that are, th are through the roof. I mean, the, the example I gave before about, um, you know, smoking cessation or something like that, there's no benefit to the physician for that really, but the patient is going to see a, a huge benefit, but monetarily, there may be no benefit for the, um, for the clinician, even though they're the one who are investing the costs of the time and the resources to sort of do that. So, yeah. you know, in their, in their strict perspective, that's a negative ROI, but it's totally, totally worth it from a value standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like how many people have quit a job that pays very well so they could have more time off like that in and of itself is that like, if you were just looking at the monetary value, like that's an irrational decision, <laughs> but there's other factors. It totally is right. And, and economists try and get around that by talking about utility and yes. leisure time and, and all this sort of stuff. But even so we struggle to do that too. I mean, you know, say someone has um, a debilitating um, condition and there's some invasive procedure that might help them a little bit. Well, how do you just determine if it's worth it? It's not just about the cost. It's about the change in quality of life balanced with whatever 
complications come from the invasive procedure or side effects or whatever. And so that's a very complicated um, sort of mental um, exercise to figure out, is it worth it or what is the value of that, especially on an aggregate level, because it's subjective and everyone's going to have different opinions about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was in my own reading and, and just learning about economics and value and, and pricing and stuff like that. The idea that that value is inherently subjective. We all value things differently because of either our own experiences or our situation, our context. Like, so then to think about how we're going to develop a, a national, just even in a, or a statewide <laughs> value-based yep. system is just right. kind of mind boggling. It is. And, and maybe it's just a matter of, um, you know, the, the vocabulary that's used. Maybe, yeah. maybe value as it was a poor choice as a, as a word, but um, yeah, it's, it's, we want to define things and we want to say, yeah. this is what it's worth. And, and, you know, we've, we've gone through this when we've done, when we, over the last 20 years, when we've tried to quantify quality, right? Quality is subjective too. You maybe there's a few more measurement things that you, everyone can agree on, but, um, you know, we don't have a single definition for quality either. We have a million definitions, right? And so the same is going to be true as we sort of go on this journey of, of, of value-based care. Yeah. So then walk me through, can we, we talk about how crazy it could be to try to come up with a value-based system. So walk me through the kind of the, your framework here for just completing a value assessment. I think you call it the value assessment framework in your book, right? Yeah. I mean, my thought is that, you know, because there's not a single definition of value that you can come up with, <laughs> perhaps, it, you know, it's worthwhile to have a, a constant framework that sort of outlines here are all the things you should consider, uh, do define whatever you do so that even if the you have different definitions of value you know that they're sort of equally rigorous in terms of how they were thought about and potentially you can look for ways to make them comparable if you're if you're going um, if you're if you're planning them up front so you know the 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 sort of high level uh, categories within the framework are, are not you know surprising it's basically first you define what value means in that situation uh -huh. Then you identify, well, what are the costs and the benefits and what metrics are we going to use and potentially comparisons? Because we can get into that too. What is what is enough value or what's good value? And then three, the, the interpretation. And so you basically say, here's what we think value is. Here's how we're going to measure it. And here's what it means. And so that's not a complicated framework. But within each of those, um, there's several things that um, I, I lay out that, that can help get specific about those um, different um, categories. So in the definition part, I say you need to talk about the perspective, you know, value to whom. You need to talk about the scope. Are we talking about all patients, some patients, uh, this week, next week, all month, all year? You know, what are we going to talk about? If you're going to do an intervention in the hospital, is it just what you do? Or are you going to look at the spillover into, you know, the other departments, because none of these groups are silos, they all sort of, you know, interact with each other. What are the goals and objectives of uh, the assessment? Who are you trying to, you know, and, and who are, who's the, the desired audience? Are you speaking to potential patients? Are you speaking to providers? You know, who are you trying to demonstrate value to? And then what assumptions are you making? You know, and this goes back to the CMS programs that no one says it, but we're going to assume uh, you know, indirectly that any change that the hospital implements has is a hundred percent the the cause of any changes in rehospitalization rate. Mm 
right? Because yeah. when we attribute that, we're going to attribute all the change to that program, even if that's unreasonable. We're not going to say that. We're not going to define that. So when I say define value, I think it's critically important to say, we're going to assume the following. Here's how we're going to, you know, this is 100% attributable to this, or we're going to, you know, look at some sensitivity analysis where we say, well, what if it's not 100%? That sort of thing. So that's, that's the definition of value. There's a lot in there. But once you clearly define what does value mean in this situation, for whom, and under what circumstances, then all of a sudden, a lot of things down the road become clear in terms of what's the goal of, of, of the assessment and, and who is it really for? Yeah. Well, I love the, the whole piece about time frame too. Like there are some things that might initially cost a payer significantly more, right? In the, in the short run, but the goal is that 10 years, five years down the line, you know, these, this population is going to be healthier because of it. They're going to spend less in the future. Right. I mean, especially in healthcare, right. We're always talking about preventive care and, and sort of, um, you know, promoting health instead of just treating the, 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 the disease. Yeah. And then you, from, so from you, de, you define the value and then you're moving to what? Identifying the costs you're, and benefits. You identify costs and benefits. Yeah. So basically this is where you're identifying, well, what are the value sources? So if a hospital, for example, is trying to reduce infections and they, they define value as, you know, um, reductions in, in infections and from this, from the perspective of, um, you know, the hospital. So we, we, you know, we incur certain costs when people get infections. And so we're going to assess the value of reducing those based from our um, perspective. And we're, this is the goal and we're presenting this to the board. So that's the audience and here are the assumptions. Then they're going to outline, okay, well, what are the costs and, and benefit sources? Well, there's staff time and there's materials and there's uh, anything else that would be involved in sort of incorporating or implementing this thing. But the costs are specific to the perspective. So the, if the patients incur any costs or the payers incur any costs, that's not part of this particular assessment because we're doing it from the provider perspective and looking at, at our value, the value to us. Benefits are, you know, some form of a reduction in, um, in, in the infections, whether that's a cost savings or whatever it turns out to be, or a larger um, component of a, of a risk pool, right? They perform better on a quality measure, so they're going to get more revenue, and that's part of the value that they get. And then part of that, too, is, is talking about, well, what are the metrics we're going to look at? Are we going to look at, you know, cost per infection avoided, or are we going to look at overall costs or ROI or, or whatever it might be? And then what as our benchmark, what are, what's good, right? Is just breaking even good? Do we want to do better than we could have if we had put this investment somewhere else? Do we want to do better than say how we did last year, whatever it is. So the identification of the costs and benefits and metrics can be straightforward, but it, but the more specific you can get, you can get the better. So the first two, you know, you define the value and you define that, identify the costs and benefits. That's really the, the creating of the assessment itself. And then the last one is about the interpretation. Um, and, and instead of just leaving that as, oh, just interpret it and communicate it, I think there are some specific things that, that people should do to really make it sort of worthwhile. Um, the first is to explore multiple types of value, right? It's not always just about money. Uh, yeah. Talk about, you know, patient or staff um, satisfaction and, and or turnover you know, rate or turnover rate, yeah. right? You, you provide better care and your staff is happier. They like their jobs more. They feel like they're making more of an, more of an impact like that, that has value. 
Um, you should inform and guide. If it's not, if the, if it's um, obvious what the value is, then don't bother doing it. Everyone already knows it, right? So you should have some sort of learnings as part of this. Um, and and I, I talk about a couple others too, but uh, but one of them is is also you need to talk about what what you're going to do going forward. I mean, in the quality world, we're just assumed we just assume that we know. Okay, we got to track these quality measures every quarter or every month or every year. Value assessments, it seems like they're done once and then people just kind of throw up their hands and say, okay, so what are you going to do going (laughs) forward? Are you going to check and see if this is still effective six months from now? And what is your return at that point? And at what point does it not, uh, is it no longer financially feasible or whatever it is? So there's in the interpretation and communication piece. Um, often can be, you know, as large or larger than the than the process to 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 actually gather all the information and, and produce the the metrics. Yeah, but then you know, if you set it up right on the first two steps, that last piece is very specific, right? Like it gives you clear action items, initiatives that you can move forward from there, even guidance to policymakers, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're clear about here's our goal uh, up front, here's our goal, here's our audience. You know, then when you communicate to the board or whoever, you you knew up front what you were trying to get to. And so now when you're you're interpreting that, it allows you to be very clear. Here is the value to us. Here's what this means. Here, here's what we should do going forward. Here's how it compares to what else we could have done. And so here's a clear story and clear narrative uh, for doing this. Because typically whenever somebody is assessing value, they're doing it because they want to communicate that value to somebody else. They want to communicate it to their administrators or to an investor or to CMS or to patients, right? Um, here's a new policy or a new program we have at our clinic. Here's why it's of value to you. So if you think about how you're actually going to use that uh, before you even start it, then that can really help you in the interpretation um, yeah. part of it. Awesome. Well, Craig, thanks so much for, for diving in. I feel like this is one of those you have to go back and listen to again, just to take notes. <laughs> thanks so yeah, much for sharing there's, your insight. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot in here. You can tell I've talked about it and, and thought about yeah. it a lot, but there's, but there's a lot in there. So uh, well, I really the book, the, there's tons of references after each chapter, right? So <laughs> it's well yeah, I mean, I, I try, I mean, I'm an academic at, yeah. at heart, so I try and be careful when I'm citing sources to really give credit to, to where credit is due, but, um, yeah, but yeah, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. So, yes. And the book is called practical strategies to assess value in healthcare. Where can people find the book, find you find out more about your work? Yeah, it, people can find me at solidresearchgroup.com. Uh, that's the name of my consultancy. Uh, the, the book will be released by Springer Nature. Um, they said late March or early April. Um, you can Google it and find it on Springer's page. Uh, Amazon uh, will also carry it. Um, and uh, for those institutional uh, customers out there, certain people have access to sort of Springer materials. And so it'll be, it'll be one of the ones that you would have access to through that sort of overall subscription. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So Craig, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Craig Solid about discussing, assessing, and communicating value in healthcare. Again, I just feel like it is one of those areas that unless you're way in the executive suite or you are perhaps working for a policymaker or a payer, a lot of these conversations are just not taking place in in the healthcare world, right? Again, 
a lot of these conversations are being driven by the policymakers and by the payers and clinicians and or providers, if we're sticking with the, with the four P's for the alliteration, the, the providers and the patients need to have a, a, a say in what is valuable in healthcare. And I mean, you see this coming out uh, every day in the literature, <laughs> things like patient-driven outcome measures. You know, we use the care survey at the clinic, and, and we've used that um, on some research studies, but things that really f- try to drive down and focus on what is valuable to the end user or the end recipient of the services, which is the patient. Now, again, healthcare is super, super complex because you've got a situation in a lot of cases where the person paying for the services is not necessarily the person receiving the services. And Craig kind of mentioned this earlier. Well, that brings into uh, question things of like moral hazard and are there situations where people are consuming more healthcare than is necessary because they're not bearing the brunt or the cost and what has that done to healthcare prices has that skewed the the role of prices in an economy and how price setting you know one of the roles of prices is to direct the the supply of valuable goods and services so it is definitely one of those conversations that's very, very heady, very academic, but it has real-world implications, not only for clinicians, but also for the patients who are receiving care. So hopefully um, hopefully that's it was a exciting conversation, or at least an interesting conversation about an, a very important topic. If you like the show, it would mean a lot if you went to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Helps people find the show. If you want to learn more about the show, if you want to get the show notes, the links to the book, to Craig, to his uh, research group, and all of that, you can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show and click on episode 049, and that will get you all of the links. Um, yeah, I think that's that's about it. If you own, run, or operate a healthcare clinic or organization and you want to attract, acquire, engage, and retain more patients so that you can increase your revenue and your bottom line, um, check out the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. That's where we use our, our framework here at Rehab You Practice Solutions to help you do just that. You can learn more about that at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com slash UPE, that's RehabUPracticeSolutions.com slash UPE for the ultimate patient experience blueprint. Until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.